According to international media, Russia has gathered up to 130,000 troops along different stretches of its border with Ukraine, as the United States warns that currently, as White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre stated, we are in the window where an invasion could begin at any time. Russia has denied such allegations, but the movements of troops suggest that an invasion, at the very least, remains a distinct possibility. The United States has promised a massive round of sanctions in response, and tensions have only grown as negotiations have faltered. So the question remains on what is really going on in Ukraine and what could possibly happen. And what are the possible repercussions of a Russian invasion of the Eastern European state? From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. Joining me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in Russia and Ukraine today is Liam Brucker Casey. Hi, Liam. Hey, Drew. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. And focusing on the international reactions to the ongoing tensions is Sydney Dyer. Hi, Sydney. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. All right, guys, let's get right into it. So I'll first turn to you, Liam, just to give sort of a background on the conflict and tensions between Ukraine and Russia. How does the ethno-political makeup of Ukraine play into the current tensions and conflict between the two governments? So uh, Ukraine spent many years, of course, um, as part of the USSR, and before that, the Russian Empire. Ukraine, Belarus, Russia are all very close culturally and linguistically and ethnically. But under the USSR, Ukraine was its own state, as was Russia, as was Belarus, and many of the uh, Central Asian republics. And after the fall of the USSR, all these countries, of course, became independent. Ukrainians are a distinct ethnic group, even though they are quite close to Russians. But Ukraine itself has been host to a large Russian population, ethnically Russian and people who would speak Russian. And this has caused tensions, right? Ukraine has kind of wanted, in some aspects, some of Ukraine has wanted to kind of move to the West, while other um, aspects of Ukraine have wanted closer ties to Russia. Um, and this has set up a pretty stark tension in the country and outside of it. Yeah. So you kind of already took away where my next question was going to on what has the state of relations been between the two nations since the fall of the Soviet Union and true Ukrainian independence. But I also kind of want to go back to your points on like some parts of Ukraine, the population is more sympathetic to the West and some parts is more sympathetic to the Russian. Is there a geographic like the east, eastern part of Ukraine being more sympathetic to the Russians? or the Russians and the West more sympathetic to the Western European nations? Um, yeah, it doesn't divide you know, perfectly East and West for sure, but certainly in the East and the Southern portions of the country kind of along the coast, there are larger ethnic and linguistic Russian populations. Provinces such as Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea, which all their statuses are a little bit different, but they're all basically now part of or satellites of Russia now after the 2014 kind of crises in Ukraine um, with Russian involvement. But there are still a large uh, ethnic and linguistic Russian population. But the country overall now definitely seems to want closer ties with the West, whether that be 
joining NATO or joining the European Union. This kind of tension between closer ties to Russia or closer ties to the West was a big cause of crisis in 2014. Ultimately saw Ukraine move towards the West, but also uh, lose Crimea and uh, the war in Donbass. And that kind of leads into the next point, where I can direct them both back to you, Liam, and also have Sydney up. What is kind of the background of the 2014 Crimea conflict, and how does this affect the current state of play between the two nations? Because in this situation, there's a lot of feeling that we've been here before, or in some capacity. So what, how would you both go about analyzing the background of this conflict and how that affects the current state of play? Definitely. So from a more international perspective, I'm looking at the response that NATO had prior. So the main reason that in 2014 Crimea was invaded, at least this is the main reason that Russia has stated, they mainly invaded because of NATO's expansion into Eastern European countries. Russia did not want this. Russia wanted to maintain its sphere of influence over prior Soviet countries and over Eastern Europe. Then when NATO started to become interested in the Ukraine, it caused Russia to essentially go into a tailspin and become very concerned about the their future as a sphere of influence over Eastern European countries, specifically the ethnic Russians that are located in Ukraine. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on that, Liam, to go um, with that? Um, yeah, I, I think the current president at the time was going to kind of abandon um, closer ties with the West and move towards closer cooperation with Russia, and many Ukrainians um, were upset with this. And there was the kind of Maidan revolution, uh, which saw him resign and flee the country, actually, and go to Russia. And this also saw Russia covertly, and at the time would not admit that this was the case, but it is now clear that they sent in Russian agents to basically take over Ukraine. Um, Now, there was genuine desire to be closer to Russia among many Crimeans. Um, And then a similar situation in the Donbass. There was genuine support among some civilians, but definitely what happened would not have been possible without Russian state intervention. All right. That is, I think, a good summary of the situation. One final thing before we move on to, like, Russian territorial ambitions and the military layout of the situation. Quickly, Liam, could we just go over the current feeling of the Ukrainian and Russian citizenry. What are their thoughts about the ongoing tensions? I I think it's safe to say that the majority in both countries don't want a war. Certainly Ukrainians don't want to be invaded. Um, I think we'll kind of get to this a little bit later, but prospects of success should Russia actually go ahead and invade Ukraine would not be good for Ukrainians. But I think that's also true for Russians, and most Russians realize that, that an invasion of a country of 40 million people, even if it is militarily inferior, would not be good for the Russian economy. Um, Many lives could be lost and internationally would have a lot of blowback. So I don't think it's very popular anywhere. Now looking, moving on to the Russian territorial ambitions right after that summary of how this conflict could potentially play out. Why do you think Russia is choosing now to increase tensions? Sydney, you mentioned the threat of NATO expanding to Eastern Europe. Is that the only reason that Russia is choosing to threaten an invasion now, or is there something else going on? Russia would be looking to threaten an invasion now, specifically because of NATO looking into Ukraine. Specifically, NATO has actually stated that Ukraine becoming a country of 
involved in NATO will not happen for a long while just because of the issues that come about with Russia saying this, that this is a threat to their sovereignty and other issues of the sort. I personally think that Russia is also trying to kind of assert dominance in the area and try and maintain their economic prosperity. So currently there's a Nord Stream 2 pipeline that is going to Germany and that pipeline is currently under progress. And the German chancellor has come out and has said that they might stop progress if Russia does try to invade. However, Russia is not sure of this. So if they could economically benefit from Nord Stream 2 and they could regain territory in Ukraine, this would be massively beneficial. And we'll get into the Nord Stream 2 pipeline a little bit later, Sydney. I do think it's a good point because that does play into part in Russian influence over the European nations and their response to what happens if an invasion occurs or the current tensions. So I mentioned it a little bit earlier in the intro, but I'll toss it back to both of you. Like how many troops, out of estimates from 100,000 to 130,000 Russia has on the border with Ukraine, from where could they invade and what are the current defense capabilities of the Ukrainian government and military? Can they conceivably hold out against the Russian army? I mean, as Liam, you mentioned, Ukraine is a large state, 40 million people, one of the larger nations in Europe. Can they conceivably hold out against the Russians or is this a very much an uneven scale? So uh, Ukraine is probably in the worst position it could be and probably a worse position than it was certainly two decades ago because it's the borders and the the shape of relations with the countries on their borders has changed significantly. If Russia wanted to, it could invade from almost every side um, except the West. Um, and even it, e- there is even a Western border that it could invade from. Obviously, there is the border with Crimea, so Russia could theoretically invade from the south. Um, Russia could invade along its recognized, internationally recognized border in the east, which is also kind of expanded because of its satellite states in the Donbass. And it could invade from the north, um, from Belarus. The border with Belarus is quite close to the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And so uh, there's also Transnistria, which is uh, in between Moldova and Ukraine, which is a, an ethnic Russian enclave that is a very tiny strip of land, but it's very long and it goes the entire border almost between Moldova and Ukraine. And that is also sympathetic to Russia. So Ukraine would basically be surrounded in a lot of ways, and its military is just not as mighty as Russia's. It could, you know, put up somewhat of a good fight. But in terms of firepower, in terms of manpower, it just would not be able to successfully defend itself in all likelihood. That is sort of a bleak estimation of the current prospects, Liam. And I do think being able to invade from three different sides, from Belarus in the north close to the capital, as you mentioned, of Kiev, from the east and from the south in Crimea. One thing I also wanted to get into There's been like an ongoing Russian sea blockade of the Black Sea as well in Ukrainian ports. How is this situation going to affect Ukraine or Russia itself? So Russia um, has a very large uh, naval fleet. I believe Ukraine has one uh, naval ship. I forget the class of a vessel, but um, certainly Ukraine doesn't have a substantial navy to speak of. Yeah, so basically it could cut off a lot of outlets for Ukraine to trade. Certainly, 
uh, trade with Russia would stop, trade with, would, with Belarus, which is basically, like I said, a kind of a very close, almost satellite state of Russia um, would stop. Um, basically only trade with Western neighbors such as Poland and you know Romania and Moldova uh, would continue. But it certainly would not be good for Ukraine economically, although Russia, like we have said, would face uh, pretty severe sanctions, probably the likes of which it definitely has not seen before. That is uh, an important point to consider. As we're considering the military layout, there's also several other aspects that go into this conflict. Also international actors as well. So I'll direct a question to you, Sydney, on will the West get militarily involved in the situation, whether that be the United States or the European nations, if Russia decides to invade? So particularly with Germany, I do not think that they would get involved specifically because of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I believe that they, as the Chancellor has stated, would be more inclined to simply stop the project for a short period of time to ensure that anyone who needed to get into Russia and the fight could continue and they would not support Russia economically through purchasing their oil. However, I do not think that Germany would invade. This is a very different question when you go to other European countries, specifically when you look at the viewpoints of European voters, according to the European Foreign Council. This has shown that a lot of different European countries and their voters believe that is very crucial that certain people that the West responds to the Ukrainian crisis and are willing to even make sacrifices for that. I do not think that invasion is the primary target at this moment. I do not believe they'll get militarily involved. I think a lot will have to do with economic sanctions and responses of that sort. But at this moment, I do not believe that military involvement nor invasion would be occurring from the Western point of view. So we'll get back to the point on the European stances on sanctions later, though I do think that's a really good point, Sydney. Like what the United States has stated, of course, that they will undertake massive sanctions against the Russian government if they chose to invade, if they choose to invade Ukraine. But they installed sanctions after 2014. How will these sanctions really impact the these sanctions proposed by the American government impact the Russian economy? So at one point there was a threat to cut Russia off from SWIFT. SWIFT is a international communications front for economic and international relations monetary institutions to discuss. And this discussion of economics is very important and vital to economic growth and economic well-being modernly. And so they, for a while, were threatened to be cut off from SWIFT. However, that threat is currently no longer on the table. And at this moment, Russia has specifically stated that they do not believe that sanctions would hurt them that badly because they have been sanctioned so many times that they have kind of lost their teeth at this point. So I think that the economic sanctions would do something, but I think cutting them off from SWIFT would be a much larger implication. So it seems to me in the proposal that uh, the Russian government would be able to take the economic sanctions of the United States, and that's the greatest thing they're offering at the moment. You mentioned the different European nations and Germany kind of being torn to two sides with the Nord 2 pipeline project, which, which provide a huge amount of natural gas to Germany to tamper down the soaring energy prices in Europe right now. What about other European nations like the United Kingdom and France? Are they on a stance of they support the United States or are they more with Germany and trying to find a middle ground? 
particularly with France, from what I could find, and, Fran and French voters specifically, they were more looking on the Germany side, where they were trying to temper the issues that are currently going on in Russia and Ukraine, but they are not looking for a specific sacrifice, as I prior mentioned. Some of the countries that specifically looked at the sacrifice and were willing to more make it were including Finland. Well, looking forward, past, moving past the economic repercussions of this potential conflict, let's start to take a look at the perspective of NATO and the West. And I'll direct the first question of this, kind of two questions to you, Sydney, of like, what actions is the Biden administration taking right now to address the current tensions and conflict in Ukraine? And what is the current policy of the Biden administration if Russia decides to invade? What's their plan? So currently the Biden administration is specifically looking towards economic sanctions, essentially putting the mother of all sanctions onto Russia if they decide to invade. There's not really much plan afterwards, but currently there is also a plan to ensure that Americans who are currently located in Ukraine can get out safely and are protected. That is the main concern of the Biden administration from what I've found, is to put economic sanctions onto Russia for an invasion and to ensure the safety of American citizens. And it seems there's also an ongoing debate in the U.S. Congress on well on whether there should be sanctions installed at the current moment or later on if the Russian government decides to invade. So the, definitely the economic sanctions is a key part of the, Amer of the Biden administration's stance in coordinating with European states. Looking back to you, Liam, what is the demands of like the Russian government and, Uc and also Ukraine for that matter, but Russia in regards to NATO and Ukraine? To a certain extent, Russia has been kind of coy on what it wants, but in other ways, it is clear, um, and even if it wasn't outright stated, it would be easy to understand. Certainly, Russia doesn't want Ukraine to probably ever join NATO. It probably doesn't want any further cooperation militarily, for sure, uh, with uh, NATO. Now, any more extensive demands could cause pretty serious... Or, or are very dangerous um, and could prove very volatile. Currently, Ukraine still um, has or claims sovereignty over both the Crimea and the Donbass. Both of these are basically de facto controlled by Russia or satellites of Russia. And Russia has been making certain claims such as, I believe earlier today actually, and, and that's part of the, the situation is so rapidly developing that, I mean, by the time that this comes out, probably would have been more serious developments. But Russia has claimed to um, unearth some sort of mass grave that maybe would have, according to them, constituted a sort of genocide of ethnic Russians, right? These are all seem like pretext to the possibility of an invasion that would see Russia either install some sort of government that is more sympathetic to Russia, basically a puppet state, maybe annex uh, Ukrainian territory. It's not entirely clear, but certainly Russia, at the very least, wants Ukraine not to become more hostile and more close to the West than it already is. And I do think you bring up a good point, Leah, on looking for grievances to use to invade a possible thing, and Russia's setting that up. Uh, you mentioned the uh, genocide claims or convention. Russia has claimed the West did the same thing when interfering, or NATO did when interfering in Yugoslavia. Of course, the response of NATO at the time, the reasoning for that was to prevent the Serbs from carrying out genocide against non-Serbs in the country. So in, a f 
in a sense, Putin is saying, we're taking a page out of your own playbook to intervene in this situation. So I also wanted to mention, you mentioned current developments. It's just recently come out in the past couple of days that there's been cyber attacks on Ukrainian online institutions of like the Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Affairs. Do you think this is a prelude? This seems to be out of the Russian playbook. Yeah, it, it definitely could be Russia in all likelihood. My hunch is that it uh, was Russian sanctioned or Russian um, orchestrated. I suppose if you're more sympathetic to a Russian perspective, maybe it's a false flag on behalf of, of Ukraine or Western uh, nations to try to be a pretext for something. But in all likelihood, it's either some sort of probe or a way to kind of weaken or intimidate Ukraine. Clearly, Russia has plenty of experience with cyber warfare and is, is pretty advanced in terms of uh, the world, in terms of superpowers that have like these capabilities. So it definitely seems like just another kind of aggressive act if it is confirmed to be Russia. Going back to you, Sidney, you mentioned that NATO has no plans to regard to include Ukraine in the, in the alliance in the future. But what are the demands of NATO and the United States with regards to what's happening in Ukraine? What are they asking of the Russians? NATO is not looking to include Ukraine as part of NATO in the near future. This is not in an implication towards the broader future of the nations. This is just an implication for the current future and a more closer look at it, specifically because of the threats of Russia. Going on to the demands of NATO and the United States with regard to Ukraine, they are currently demanding that Russia de-escalate the situation, pull troops back, and go back to the way things were prior, as in to stop trying to gear up for an invasion, stop trying to put people on the border, and cease their actions in the Black Sea currently because of the negative implications that this has. And also, I wanted to ask Sydney because as our international analyst, you, there's been recent developments or like growth in the Chinese relations, Russian relationship. So how does that play into this situation? Definitely. So recently, there was a joint statement by China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin. And this detailed their intentions to redistribute global power. And this intention was more so geared towards gaining land and things of that sort, gaining a larger sphere of influence, if you will. China said that they would not formally support an invasion of the Ukraine at this moment, but they would denounce the West, specifically the United States, because they feel that the United States and the West has pushed Russia to this breaking point through allowing NATO to become involved in Ukraine's politics. Currently, the Ukraine has a NATO drill that runs once a year, and they run a co-op with that. So they believe that this is impeding on their ability to have a sphere of influence over Russia. Very good. I'll just, uh, since we're running out of time, I'll talk about our final, trying to give you both final thoughts on the situation. I'll just kind of ask you kind of two questions that go together. Of course, Russian President Vladimir Putin has shown his willingness consistently to engage in military conflicts to assert Russian influence in Eastern Europe. Will this be his last time making such a maneuver? And is this conflict more likely to happen? Is an invasion more likely to happen? Or is this latest round of tensions, in your guys' opinion, merely some very forceful saber rattling? I'll go to you first, Liam. It's certainly not uh, definitive. And I think anybody who 
says that they know for sure what will happen in the future, certainly in the next decade, is probably not, you know, wholly basing that in fact. But I think certainly Russia, its motivations are pretty clear. It definitely wants to keep a hold of nations that have been under its sphere of influence for a long time. Pretty soon, if it invades Ukraine, um, it's going to start running out of non-NATO uh, nations that it'll border. Um, it already borders the Baltic states, where all, which are all NATO nations. There's certainly a little bit of danger in this idea that Russia would use protection of ethnic Russians as a pretext for invasion. Uh, Latvia, for example, has a huge Russian population. I think nearly 30% or more um, are ethnic Russians. So certainly Russia doing this is a little concerning. But potentially there is a peaceful solution um, with Ukraine and Russia to kind of reach some sort of compromise. Thank you, Liam. Sydney? I do not believe that this will be the last time that Putin will set, will, Putin and Russia will attempt to exercise control over the Eastern European states. This is not the first time, and I do not believe that will be the last time. Since Crimea in 2014, this is the second time that this has happened, we're just looking for another and a continuance. This is because of NATO's continued involvement in Eastern Europe. As long as Russia and Putin believe that NATO has a strong influence over these Eastern European states and that Russia does not have this influence, they will be trying to regain it through any means possible. Well, thank you for that, Sydney. This has been a great discussion, guys. Sydney and Liam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Bobby Kyle. Hey, Bobby. Hello. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So we have an end to an international border standoff, the United States recently splitting frozen Afghan assets between 9-11 victims' families and aid groups, and the leader of the Burkina Faso coup was sworn in as president. Those sound very interesting. Let's start with the international border standoff. Yeah, so two days after a judge ordered to remove Canadian truckers from the Ambassador Bridge in Ontario, the bridge was cleared. Canadian truckers had blocked the bridge for their protest against COVID vaccination policies of Trudeau's government. By closing the major international crossing, the truckers caused massive economic loss in trade for the country. Very interesting, Bobby. Now moving on to the next headline, what's going on with the Afghan assets? So the Biden administration recently announced that they would split Afghan Central Bank Reserve seized by the United States government between the families of victims of 9-11 and aid groups in Afghanistan. This comes after at least a million Af Afghans face famine due to the economic collapse in their country. The Taliban have faced sanctions from the U.S. since their takeover last August, and without these funds, the U.N. projects that this could become the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Another development to be aware of and look out for. And you mentioned the coup in Burkina Faso? Yes, yeah, so Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Demiba, who led a coup against the democratically elected President Kabore three weeks ago, was recently inaugurated as president. The disgruntled military officers involved in the coup claimed that they were trying to restore security to the country after President Kabore's government failed to contain jihadist insurgencies. These jihadist insurgencies in Burkina Faso have also been spreading throughout West Africa. Demiba was formally confirmed as president by the Constitutional Council and he will oversee a transitional period and has promised to hold elections once order has been restored. Thank you so much for coming on, Bobby. Thank you. That is all the time we have for today. 
Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rokulia, and of course your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.